So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome, everybody, to Cash Flow to Freedom. Today is going to be a very, very special podcast, I think, for a lot of you, because we have on Damian Lupo. And Damian Lupo is going to tell us a lot about, first of all, what he went through in the last financial crisis and how he absolutely rebounded from that state, what he's doing today, but a lot focusing on investments and retirement strategies and things a lot of people are almost lost in today where they're like, what do we do? So before we get too far into it, um, I'm really excited and grateful for uh, Damien uh, for coming on. So we'll bring him in. Appreciate you coming on. It's good to be here. I'm I'm glad to to connect and you know it, with live stuff we always want to make sure things are working and the first thing I'm doing is like okay are we actually recording and I'm always looking for like a recording button and so you know that's that's helpful uh, it's it's helpful to be aware I think that's something we'll talk about just being aware of your environment and making sure that things are what you think they are yeah and you know you have an interesting so you've been obviously investing um, entrepreneurial and in the real estate world for a long time but. 2008 uh, really, you know, rocked your old business. So why don't we go back before that, go before we get into the, the Great Recession and the financial crisis, how you got started and where, how you got in that position? So it starts back in 1977 when I was in the womb and my yes. parent, no, I'm just, we're not going to go that far back. That's a little <laughs> stupid. But no, I mean, really what happened is I was doing what a lot of people do. I was following my parents' instructions more or less went to school and you know, went to college. And then I got thrown out because I was trying to do something different. I, was, I started a bookstore in college and they said, you've literally put the bookstore on campus out of business. So you have to stop it or we're going to kick you out. I didn't stop it. I got kicked out, but I did pay for school in about, about three days. So <laughs> it, that led me down a path of thinking I'm supposed to be doing something else and not really following conventional wisdom. And after I left there, I I had a buddy of mine that came to me one day when I was selling insurance and he said, I got a deal. And I said, why are you telling me? And he said, because you read rich dad, poor dad, and I need some money. And I'm like, man, I I'm barely scraping here. He goes, yeah, but I only need 6,000 bucks. So I took a cash advance on my credit card and went out and bought this thing, this house. And I went, okay, now I'm an investor. No idea what I was doing. So I electrocuted myself learning about wiring, <laughs> fell off the roof, flooded the house, you know, all these things. And it, I just started doing a lot of activity because one of the, the things in investing is activity. You can't get rich by sitting still or just hanging out behind a, a computer screen. And I just started doing that where I went out and tried things that I learned at seminars or on tapes. And I stopped listening to all the people that were trying to get me to go back to college. And when I did that a lot, it turned into 150 houses. And I made a bunch of money because I was in a lot of motion. And that's where the story gets interesting. So that's that's the, how it started. So and, you, and where, you, you know, got up, what was the time frame in which you got up to that many houses? Uh, it took me about three and a half years to get to 150 houses. So it was, it, you know, it's, it's fascinating because I, I was playing this game called Cash Flow, which was Robert Kiyosaki's game. Now that everybody's bunkered right now, I highly recommend getting this game. Uh, go to Amazon, get a copy and play it because on the other side of this quarantine or whatever we're in, you're going to have a different appreciation for financial literacy and it's a fun game to play with your family. So I played this game about four months after I was, uh, I had bought that first house and I realized I was 30 days from bankruptcy personally. And I went, Oh crap. So 
I had basically been stalling because my own belief systems were getting in the way of me taking the right activity and action. And as soon as I figured that out, I got clarity because the numbers, the numbers don't lie. They tell you the truth and the story. Like you're crazy because you're not getting your ass going. And I went out and bought eight houses that, that next 30 days and went from bankruptcy to being worth about a quarter million dollars on paper. So it happened fast when I got clear. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, what happened during the crisis? So what's what's crazy is that in 04 and 05, I, was, I, I got to a point where the market didn't make any sense, much like in the last couple of years, things seemed to have bubbled. And so I was like, I'm, I'm getting out of these houses. I was selling the houses, making a bunch of money. So I was a multimillionaire. And I thought, well, okay, I can't take a break. I'm super smart. And like, I am the best, you know, like I had, my ego was the size of Texas. And so I went out and I started doing other projects all over the country. In 2007, I had five projects that were each supposed to net me like a million bucks a piece. Within 12 months, they were netting me negative a million. I lost over a million on each one of them. And because of my assumptions, and you can never overestimate how wrong you can be. I, I was wrong. Like I was opposite wrong. I actually lost one of my projects to foreclosure. And then I thought, well, I've already lost like on that one, it was 2 million. And, and then the, the lender sued me and said, well, I'm going to go after you for a deficiency for another 900,000. And I went, wait, I didn't realize I could lose more than what I had in. And guess what? You can. So <laughs> like all these lessons are happening. And the problem wasn't that I was, I like the problem really was that I didn't have the experience of going through that cycle. And nobody around me did because I was too smart to have mentors. My ego said, you don't need anybody else. Big mistake because when you've made a lot of money and you're successful, you think, I don't need anybody else. And a lot of people are doing the same thing now and they're learning, I need some bald, gray-haired people around me that have been through this a few times. You know, I, I love that so much because that is so reminiscent of, you know, why I got started and where we are now because I had a huge ego. I went, was doing an acquisition of a company that was in another state. I didn't quite understand a lot of logistics, but it didn't matter because I could pull it off no matter what. And the guy that had owned the company obviously was an idiot. And uh, um, we were just so good that I ignored the fact that I was uh, basically getting frauded and I was an idiot. And I couldn't even recognize it because my ego just looked over details and things that I thought weren't important. And no matter what, I could make it work. And I learned the whole hard way. Same thing. It was like, hold on. I thought my, I thought I was only at risk, you know, a couple million here. And it turned out, no, I was, I didn't understand my downside because downsides don't matter when you have an ego because you'll never see them. So it, you know, so it, it's, I, I, I hate to bond over such disastrous financial <laughs> things, but it, it's true. Those are, um, those are times when people really readjust paths. So I definitely, I definitely feel you there, man. Yeah, it's it. I, what I realized too is that success is a terrible teacher, and where you where you really learn is in the times where you get your butt kicked and you have to go through something. I was um, I was teaching with Robert Kiyosaki, which is interesting because in the early early days, he's this guy that I flew across the country to see for five minutes on a stage, and and then you know in the last few years, I've taught with him numerous times, and and we were we were talking, and I I was we were thinking about wealth, what wealth is, and and. It, I've been saying for a long time that wealth is not cash or cash flow. It's it's really confidence. And and he said something similar. He said it's it's the it's it, the wealth is the lessons you learn by going through the thing. And so I said, well, I'm a, I'm like a gazillionaire because I've gone through everything. I think. And he said, yeah, that's that's what it is. It doesn't matter if you lose the money because you've had the experience and they can't take that away. So right now, one of the one of the beautiful things for anybody that's out there and they're like, oh no. 
my stuff is crumbling around me. The fact that you've done something is going to be the wealth that you bring into the next thing. And you're going to explode your financial wealth because you have the experiential wealth, which is really what true wealth is. You know, it, it's so interesting because I, you know, I'm very big on education. I try to read everything that I can. I try to consume knowledge, um, particularly because I want to bypass those hard times and figure out what other people did and everything because I learned from them. Um, but what I found is it doesn't matter how much you consume because the path isn't paved by what other people did. The path is paved by what you're doing. And in order to reach success, it, it like action creates action and it creates opportunities. So you can't see opportunities by reading books necessarily, right? Those are great ways to start. Education is a great way to get you the confidence to start, but you don't have opportunities. You don't get true education without doing. And yes, you can fail. No, not you can. You're going to. It's just inevitable. But learning how to protect your downside and learning how to fail fast and fail forward is so essential on your path. And the more confidence that you get and the more you understand your downside, right? So it's funny because the, the farther I've come along, the more I underestimate the upside, right? So it used to be everything would make you a billionaire, right? That's not how I operate anymore. It's like I, I'm getting to first, second, third base, and then I'll make my home runs that way, right? But, um, and I would, at first, I would underestimate the downside completely. Right now, it's totally opposite. I underest, uh, I underestimate the upside and I overestimate the downside. I'm like, no, I really want to make sure that I understand this downside. I spend more time on it, and that's come through experience, not through education. And that led to a whole lot of different opportunities. But uh, I, I just there's something about the action of doing uh, that. Even if you read it in a book, maybe maybe I'm different. Maybe I, I'm weird, but it's just not it's not the same. Well, being weird is, is part of being uh, being successful. I mean, you're if you just do what everybody else does, you're going to have whatever everybody else has. And you have to be willing to be wrong and be crazy before you're right and you're a genius. One of the, the valuable things for all of us, especially right now, and really indefinitely, is to have two plans. Have a survival plan and have an opportunity plan. And part of it is because sometimes, like right now, survival is really important. We need to make sure we've got cash. We need to make sure that we're not stupid and get sick if we can help it. Like going out into big crowded things on spring break, a bunch of idiots doing that. And if you're listening right now and you're doing it on spring break, you're a moron and you're making everybody else, you know, you're risking everybody else's life. So thinking about survivability and not not just selfishly, but other people's too, and doing the right thing for that and the opportunity because we're not going to be in this crisis forever. And if, if we say, well, we are, then your, your thinking is screwing you up. Because you can never get past it. You'll literally be in a fetal position like I was in 09 and 10. So we've got to have two ways to look at it. Make sure that you can survive both physically and financially in the immediate. And then down the road, think about the opportunities. Because I, I'm convinced the opportunities are going to be so much bigger and better than they have been in the last five years, in the next five years. So I'm, I'm rather excited about getting over this thing. I think it's just a matter of us not losing our mental shit and yeah. getting through it. I. I couldn't agree with you more. We, you know, for the last five years, we've been saying the same thing. We need a recession. Um, this is not what we hoped for. Obviously, you hope that a slowdown in the economy wouldn't involve endangering people. Um, and this is something different than anyone has ever seen. Um, we've never had anything like this. And I heard a great quote that said, every single time there's a downturn, it's always new. And it's different every time. 
but every upcycle is the same. Recoveries are always the same. So downturns are always different. Recoveries are always the same. And recoveries outpace uh, down cycles 10 to 1. And so when you look at the upside compared to what you have to have to lose in economics uh, cycles, it makes way more sense to just protect your downside and be ready to take advantage of the upside because it's so much greater. Um, that these are short term, um, economically speaking, downsides are short term. You take all the bull runs together, and once again, the downsides are like 10% of the time or whatever the exact number is. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's a fraction of the upside. But timing is so critical and important that when you look at the next five years, you're exactly right. There will be deals that haven't we haven't seen in the last five years and opportunities that show themselves in different ways. But if you haven't protected your downside or you've endangered your health, you can't take advantage of the opportunities. Then you're stuck and just trying to climb back out of it. So it's extremely important. And when you talk about health and safety, these are downsides that, you, you know, lots of times you can't recover from. I'm, you know, I'm very aware with that with health issues. It's, you know, there's no reason to risk that. But even more importantly, risking others, that's just stupid. Well, and here, here's one of the things that along those lines that we, we have to think about and remember that we're, we're not naturally going to rise to the occasion. We're going to fall to the level of our training. And so if we've trained to be a hedonistic prick because we were in college and part of fraternity, what are we doing? We're falling to the level of our training. We go out there to spring break versus if you had trained to be conscious and compassionate and connected to people you're more likely to say, okay, what's the right thing for everybody? And then you thrive together. So really and truly, the people that are going to move through this the best are the ones that have spent years quietly training, and they've been thinking, they've been studying. And there's a chance for us to all do that going forward, because this thing, it's going to be months, and it could be years. We just don't know yet. What we do know is that we're going to have some time to do something. And the question is, what do we do? Do we expand, or do we get obsessed with the breaking news that's always going to be read on CNN. And it's it's a choice. It really is a choice. I'm looking at this stuff going, okay, what can I do to contribute? I'm going to teach a lot. I'm going to give everything I know and have been through to the world. And I'm also looking for ways to bring more people on. So I'm not hacking people. I'm finding ways to hire people. I just hired another person today. And it, it, it was a great feeling to say, okay, you know what? Somebody is is eager. And here's the thing. If you're getting downsized right now, or you're losing work, part of that is you. And if you go, well, that's not true. It is because if you're the one out there going, I am aggressive, I will do anything, I'm hungry, and I'm a great person to have on your team, there are people looking for you. I'm looking for you. It's it's so much about attitude. And we think, well, why is this happening to me? Maybe it's happening for you. Maybe it's going to give you a chance to actually re rewire and pivot your life. It's just a question of how you look at things. It's And that's your control. It's not anybody else's thing that they're doing to you unless you'd like to be a victim. So I – you know, this is such a hard conversation to have. Um, in fact, we had a podcast just a few weeks ago where we were talking about what's happening in the economy and how the government's interacting and how it's shutting things down, but how you know, there's so much opportunity to be had um, and how the government's interaction opens up different kind of opportunities like the supporting of the financial system, driving down interest rates, flooding it with cheap money for people that can borrow, left, all sorts of stuff. We're having this conversation and diagnosing. And we had somebody actually emailed and was kind of upset. And they were like, you shouldn't be saying these things. You should just be telling people how to protect their health. And, and I'm like, I'm not trying to minimize what's going on. I'm not. 
But at the same time, I'm trying not to be a victim and I'm trying to give people information and tools to take control over their situation so we can, when we come out of this, you'll be in a better position. So just saying that can ruffle some feathers, right? Now, when you're talking about saying if you're unemployed, you know, that is, if not 100% your fault, which we get, it's not, ever, but it is partially your fault, which I agree. I would, I would believe in, right? Um, if, if you're saying, so how do you, how did you come to, that's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to live that way where I accept the bad as a, you know, a result of me as well as the good, because as humans, we don't like to do that, right? Anything good that happens. Yeah. That was because of me, right? hundred percent. That was because of me. But if it was bad, no, that wasn't because of me. That was because my mom or my dad didn't love me. Right. It's because I wasn't breastfed as a child. It's because I lived in this economic situation on and on and on and on, right? But anything good is because of us. How did you get in that? How do you put your mind in that situation? Especially when you go back to 2008, which, you know, was crushing you and saying, is this my fault? Well, I think that the, the choice is when, when I, after 2008, one of the things I did, and I think this is valuable for every single person listening, I, I spent about two years in denial and that is not a river in Africa. I literally sat there and said, it's somebody else's fault and it wasn't me. And, and then when I, I spent a couple of years with a therapist coach that asked me basically the same question for about two years. And the question was, what is true? And what I realized is I was a world-class victim pointing the fingers at other people. And as I was doing that, I had three or four other fingers pointing back at me. And I was like, wait a second, what, what's true about this? The truth is I am a control freak. I like to be able to control things and I know how to let go of things, but I don't push things on other people. And to control things, you have to take 100% responsibility. So to take this to an extreme, people say, well, okay, what happens if a hurricane happens? Did you control that? No, you can choose how you react to it. And if you point at somebody and say, yeah, they're bad people, there's bad events. Anybody that gets coronavirus, that is not that you, you, you took it and you decided to get it. Like, give me a break. Unless you're a millennial in you know Fort Lauderdale and you're out there sneezing on everybody, maybe you did deserve it. But the, the point is, it's about self-responsibility and you can't control if you're a victim. You can't actually do anything. You just sit there. I would say that if you're getting, a, if you're unemployed, it's because you chose to set your life up a certain way to be unemployed. I've had a lot of jobs. And I remember the last job I had where I had one source of income, it was an employer and I had one customer, the employer. And I didn't like that because that employer, if they ever just changed their mind or downsized, I had no income. So the idea is, look, if you've got a job, that's great. Figure out another way to create income so you've got multiple sources. And it could be a lot of different things. It could be a freaking paper route. It could be a royalty from a book. It can be real estate. It could be a podcast. It could be all these different things. When we, when we go, oh my gosh, woe to me because I lost my job, you just chose to have the, the, the job and the benefits. That was your choice. And it doesn't mean that it was a bad choice. It just means you put all your eggs in one basket that you didn't control. So I think people need to really reframe how they're, they're approaching this whole thing and say, okay, well, what can I do differently next time? Because this whole victim thing isn't going to serve you. It's just going to make you look like a moron. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. When, you know, looking back, and obviously this is probably the same for everybody, but even with that huge acquisition that I was telling you, which, um, you know, at the end of the day, we were frauded legally. We were in a lawsuit stuff, but I allowed myself to be frauded. And when we looked back, it was very easily actually to point back and say, if I would have, I shouldn't have signed the contract, I shouldn't have done the deal stuff. I put myself in that situation. And out of that was actually why we created our real estate company that 
created tremendous amount of success and wealth and stability and financial freedom for me and my family. But it was because we admitted what what happened to us was because of us and we needed to change those circumstances. Now that took a long time, like you said, and it's, you know, there's a lot of whining and everything else, but it's when you're in it, it's so hard. It's so hard to see out of it. And it's like, it's so painful to turn when you feel used, when you feel abused, you feel out of control, then to turn at yourself and say, no, you are in control. And this is because it's your fault, especially when you feel like you don't have alternatives. So when you're climbing out of that, what did you do? I mean, you're now, did you go bankrupt? I mean, I, I guess don't, I, if I'm asking yeah, something, we, you we, don't need to ask. <laughs> ask no, I mean, but. it's when you, when you're, when you're in a situation in my situation, I had a $20 million portfolio, $5 million net worth, and it went negative the opposite. So it was like a negative $5 million net worth. So um, I would say that is the definition of bankruptcy. And it's a, it's a start over, like literally a reset switch. The, and a lot of times the, the mistake that we make is we say, okay, well, if I do something and that's not the first thing that you have to shift, you have to start with how you're thinking about things. And, and you also have to do things. So you can't just think your way to wealth. Like one of the things that people mistake is they, they think, well, I've watched the, I watched the secret. So if I think about money, it's going to fall from the sky and hit me in the head. That is the, that's a damn lie. So that's one thing. And the other thing is you've, you've got to start thinking differently. There's, there's a great book that I just did a, a book study on with, with my community called Thinking for a Change by John Maxwell. And it's really important that we look at things objectively. Objective reality, as my friend Stephen Siebold says, is key. You can't be sitting there thinking, oh, it's all unicorns and puppy dogs. The, the, the reality is in 2000 and 2006, I was Mr. Opportunity. I was Mr. Optimistic. And I didn't understand strategic thinking or big picture or pessimistic or pragmatic. And I had my butt handed to me because I didn't have these different thinkings. And they're all required to, to, to be a human being, to be fully human, and to see what you're missing if you're just looking at one thing. My process of moving through this was to have different thinkings and to honor the truth. And so I just kept asking, what is true? What is true? And I got deeper and deeper into how I was approaching things. And the thing that I learned was that it's more money is not better. More money is more. And if your entire mission is more money and you think that's going to make you happier or safer or anything, you're mistaken. More money gives you options, but you can take more money. You see these guys that they're you know, there's these like mobsters and they've got hundreds of millions of dollars and they're 400 pounds and they're a walking mess. You know, like more money isn't going to make you anything other than more of what you already are. And I think that was a huge key. I thought money would solve things. All it was doing was accelerating who I was, which was not a good thing in the start. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. So walk me through what you did then. So what did you, after you came out, you, what did you change? What were the changes that you implemented and what did you build from the you know, from the ashes of this failure, you're, you're stuck mentally, you're trying to come out of it. How'd you put it back together? And particularly, what are the things that you've changed based upon what you've learned from what happened? So there are a number of things that I, I did differently and that I started with. One thing is I got really clear on my rules. In the beginning, I didn't have any rules for business or investing. I got really clear. I wrote all those out. So now I have a guideline that governs me and it's not for anybody else. It's for me to protect me from my glands. Because we get very emotional, we get very excited, and we go, oh, that's a shiny nut, and we become a drunk squirrel. And we're like chasing crap around a tree, and it makes no sense. So that's one thing. It protects me from me. Uh, the other thing is I asked myself, why am I doing this? 
And that's a big question. If you're ask, if you're looking at deals, you're looking at businesses, or you're getting up in the morning, whatever you're doing, why are you doing it? The only reason I had before was I'm going to go do another deal to make some more money. So that the shift was, I, I figured out that I'm doing this to break a million people's financial shackles, to, to free people from financial bondage. It's a, those shackles are why I do what I do. Before, it was if I get another house, I make another forty or 50000 bucks. It is not enough to just have that. If you do, you're like, I, I know a number of people that are in the multiple comic club, you know, they're billionaires. And they're, it's an interesting thing because some of them, it's never enough. It's like, oh, I've got my billion or two. And it's like, I need another yacht. I need a bigger yacht. And there's just this lack of fulfillment. And part of my process was documenting it in a book. I wrote Reinvented Live in 2012, which is very, very relevant right now because millions of people are going to be reinventing their lives. And so part of this process was going, okay, well, first off, I need to rewire my internal, which is my thinking and my just who I am inside, because the external is, is going to become a reflection of that. If we've you know, if, if we're a hedonist inside, we're going to show up as a hedonist outside. I was really good at that. That was like my, my thing. And if we're a gentle, compassionate, giving person inside, if that's our energy, if that's who our, what our spirit is, you're going to see that externally. So we have to get clear. And here's one of the things, AJ, that's so valuable that when we're clear, we have power. If, if we're not clear, if, they, if it's fuzzy, there is no power. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And the, the biggest clarity we can get Right now, for anybody, like you're like, what do I start with? Get really clear about your numbers because your numbers tell a story about who you are because your habits determine what you spend money on and where your minutes of the day go, especially your money though. It's, it's a personal choice. That's why most people don't ever want to talk about their money. It's not because they're, they, you know, they don't quite understand it. They understand it. If you look at your credit card, you understand what your habits are. Right now, it might just be you know, a whole lot of Netflix or something, but- in general, you can tell a lot. And when I look back and, and see what I was doing with my money compared to now, it's very, there's a reason it, it matches the mission. It match, matches my values. Big difference, but it, it comes down to clarity. And are you willing to face the truth? I love that so much. David Goggins, uh, you know, he, if you ever read his book, he, he, he talks like clarity is power, but not, he doesn't say that. He, he talks, he gives that, um, that story of how he would look into the mirror. Right. And he said, every day I'd go look into the mirror and basically he would get right with real with himself as in you're not doing this. You are doing this, you know, but it was an honest, frank conversation that he would have with himself. Say, let's cut the crap. Let's get down to it. And that clarity allowed for change. And it's funny because finances like I tell people, like, I don't care what I don't care what you say. I care. I care what your finances are, and the reason being is because that tells what what it doesn't. What you're saying is what you want to believe, but what you do is who you are. And finances show all of that. It shows where you prioritize. Right? You may say you prioritize one thing, but you then you may spend all your money and time on something that is completely contrary to that. And I love this idea of sitting down. And getting really honest and evaluating your finances, where you're spending money, where you're allocating capital, and what that means and what that says about you. Um, to spend money on something, you're giving up potential. You're giving up future. And you eat, and two, just by the fact of you not thinking about it already says something, right? 
And I, I think you're right that it's a story that a lot of times we may not even realize about ourselves. Doing an audit of your financial position is eye-opening. It's like, wow, I'm because you're subconsciously taking that credit card out every single day, every day. So to go back and map that over, like if you use like Mint or any of those other tracking apps where it does and actually analyze your spending habits over a long period of time, it's very, very eye-opening. And it shows you where you're prioritizing, what you think about yourself um, and what you're doing on a daily basis that is leading to your overall result. And you can't change if you don't know, you know, what the inputs are that are creating the results. You can't make those changes. So I, I just love that clarity is power. I've never heard anybody state it like that, but it truly is. You're exactly right. Understanding where you stand is the power to make change. Well, and, you know, it, it makes me think about how many times uh, I look at my wallet or other people have their wallet. You pull out, you've got 17 credit cards. And for some reason, we tend to use a lot of different credit cards on things. It's almost because we want to delude ourselves from what we're doing. And if we were really honest, we say, oh, I want the points. All right, so tell me exactly how much you spent on going out to eat last month. Well, I'm not really sure. I got to look at my seven credit cards I used for going out to eat. And it would, what one of the strategies would be, let's get really real. What's really real is a debit card. And I don't care how much money you make or how much you're worth. If you use a debit card, that money leaves your life immediately. With a credit card, you're punting the can. With a debit card, you, use every, you put everything on that card, and people go, well, it's a business expense. It's a personal expense. I'm like, here's the point. You don't have clarity. I, I worked with a, a lady for about two years as a, a kind of an interesting project as her CFO, personal and business, and we just dug into her numbers until she was crystal clear, and I, it made her squirm. And at the end of it, she was very clear on how much money she actually had, how much she was spending. I think some of the stuff was like, wow. And some of it was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And we, if, if I don't think most of us are capable of doing this ourselves. And it's because it's too, uh, it's like, you know, like doing open heart surgery on yourself. You would never do that. You need somebody else to be able to be there and guide you because there's too much emotion in it. And if you've got somebody like in an hour, if, if somebody were to hire me and spend an hour, I could tear apart their money, give them the truth, give them a plan and set them loose and their life would change. It's because the clarity does give you the power to do something. If you don't have clarity, you have no idea what to do. So what do you do? The same thing you did yesterday. There's no change. And two, you need somebody to call your crap out so you don't give excuses, right? Like we can excuse away everything. You could be audited your financials and be like, oh yeah, but that was, you know, I had to do that. And, oh, that was this. And all of a sudden, nothing's changed, and there's actually no clarity because you covered everything up with excuses. And, to, it, you know, a lot of people, to get clarity, to understand, they it, just by acknowledging it to somebody else, it reshapes the way that that story is played out in their mind because they can't just lie. They can't cover it up. So I, I completely agree. Me and my wife, we did, when we were first married, we thought it would be important to start our marriage off on an all-cash basis. So we had envelopes, right? We thought it because we wanted to make sure we were on the same page as far as priorities and what we were doing, and we wanted to live far be, be lower means. And that was something we couldn't fake. If the money was there, it was there. If it wasn't, it was gone. We couldn't punt it down the road. We couldn't make excuses. It was gone. It didn't exist anymore. And I love that almost like, you know, like reset where it's like, no, let's stop. And for a month, every single penny is going to be accounted for. 
everything, right? And we have to come to grips with it. And it's, it's amazing how quickly we lose track. I mean, I still do it today. I have to reset and I have to rethink because out of sight, excuses creep in. We, we don't, we're not clear, right? And we get lost on that. So I think that's just awesome. Now, you, this is, you know, what we've kind of gone over, what we're talking about here is a lot of personal finance and, and budgets. But one of the things you focus a lot on is like retirements and investing. So you were in real estate when you moved on. Did you continue to be involved in real estate or were you more involved in other asset classes? Like where did you go on your wealth creation front there, um, wealth creation and wealth protection? Well, so there's, there's interesting cycles that we that are different times in history where certain things make more sense. And the, the real estate cycle has been really, really strong in the last 10 years, in large part because there's been a massive amount of cash pumped into the system. We also have an under, like in terms of multifamily investing, there's been an undersupply of units and we have a lot of people wanting to rent, needing to rent. So that's been healthy. There's also been a business cycle for businesses that have really boomed. And so I spent my time focusing on building a business and the, the business is around financial literacy, especially with financial with people's retirement accounts, because most Americans in general have their money tied up in a 401k or an IRA. That's where their wealth is. Sadly, the average 60 year old has about $60,000 in a retirement account. It's I mean, it's a terrifying prospect to think about retiring with you know 60 grand. But the so the, the focus has been on giving people options. Most people by default go, hey, I got a 401k and my financial advisor called salesperson is um, is telling me I need to just do this. And so they blindly go about their lives. The, the truth is you have a lot of options. With a 401k or an IRA, which is where most people's money is, there's all these options like private businesses, real estate, precious metals, being a bank, meaning you can loan your money out instead of saying, okay, well, the default is this. What we're learning right now, especially a, a lot of our clients, they're learning that they've just been abused by the system. They, they, they look at their there are 401s and they go, wow, this thing is over the last 20 years, I've literally made 2%. Like, wait, how did this happen? It's because you're being feed to death and you're being fed on. Like you are the feed for the wolves of Wall Street. And so that's that's the the focus is to start with that one thing because most people can say, yeah, you know what? This doesn't quite make sense. Like something doesn't smell right. And then digging deeper into it, the, the tools around financial literacy and financial mastery allow people to say, okay, well, I'm going to control my money. And I'm going to do something different. And then we start going down all sorts of roads, teaching people what they can do, what they can't do, and really how to be a professional versus how to be an amateur roadkill. Yeah. And when you say a professional, do you mean managing your own money and investments? Or are you talking allocation? Um, I guess give people kind of an example of what an amateur would do versus what what an, a professional would do. Well, bottom line, if you look at the difference, if we just think about it in terms of sports, it's the same thing. Amateurs play, pros get paid. And if you're talking about your money, amateurs basically just pay to play. You know, you're paying fees and you're just hoping. And that's kind of what an amateur does. I hope this is fun. A pro goes in and it's it's methodical. We we get paid. If you're running your own portfolio, you're getting paid based on your activities. So as a passive investor that's just an amateur, you may or may not get paid. Amateurs probably don't get paid. And that's the same in sports and in, in finance. You're probably not going to get paid long term, but a professional gets paid constantly, consistently because they have a plan. They train, they study, they have a team. And, and most people that are amateurs are like solo operators. I'm going to invest because I'm smart. I'm going to do my own thing. 
you know what? Nobody in the professional sports world, nobody does it without a coach. Nobody does it without a team. 100% of the people that are out there, you find an exception. It doesn't exist. And with finance, it's really funny because we tend to do it on our own. I remember my dad doing his taxes with a pencil and be like, he was like, no, I'm not going to have anybody else help. And I'm thinking about all the money he probably wasted in taxes and just because his ego was driving that ship. And we run our lives like that where we think I don't need somebody else or they're too expensive. Man, did you realize that, that well, I, you know, it's embarrassing that 70% of our income goes away to different governments, including the IRS over our lifetime. That's embarrassing. The fact that anybody's paying that and thinking that tax advice is expensive is lunacy. Yeah, I could not agree more. A lot of people forget when they're, especially when they're like, you know, you know, it's, it's almost like, it's like, oh, it's my duty to pay my taxes. Or you have a lot of people that are like, I have no problem paying tax, taxes. That's why the ta tax system exists. The tax code is not written to pay taxes. That's the thing that people don't understand. The government wants to incentivize you to not pay taxes by doing investments, which will build our country. So if you're paying your taxes, the government is saying, you don't know what you're doing, so we have to take it from you so we can now do it because you don't. So it's actually a penalty. Paying taxes is a penalty for you not participating in the growth of our nation. And if you're participating in the growth of the nation, you should pay obviously less, less, less taxes. That's why if I want to go buy a Ferrari, I'm going to pay a huge tax first on the income I got to take out to buy it. Then I got to pay sales tax, right? And then I got to pay taxes on, you know, everything else that comes with it. I lose huge amounts. So that car costs you tons of tons and tons of money. But when I'm buying an investment property and then I want to take my money out of it and buy another one, I don't pay taxes at all because it's a reward-based system. So paying higher taxes means you're just being penalized for not understanding what to do with your money and not helping the country grow. I like I like the way that you look at it, and it's true. A friend of mine, Tom Wheelwright, who wrote Tax Free Wealth, and we, we teach together as well. And, and one of the things he said, he, he and and Robert Kiyosaki talking about this, and and his his take is that the tax code is not about taxes; it's about it's, it's an incentive program, like you said. So using the Ferrari analogy, because I, I had a Ferrari one time, and I, I thought I was pretty important until you know until I ran it into a, a wall, basically. The, the thing about a Ferrari is that Ferrari can be an asset or a liability. That thing can be heavily taxed or it can be a tax incentive. And here's what I mean. If you say, well, I want to go be a good consumer and I'm going to pay my taxes, that Ferrari is going to cost you $350,000 for your taxes and buying it. If you look at it as a business, you say, okay, I'm going to be in the Ferrari business. Then you can go buy that thing, not pay sales tax. You can actually make money on it and you can basically drive it for free if you're thinking about it as a business person to create jobs and create create economic activity. So everything we do, same thing with a house. A house can be a great Liability thing that you enjoy an and you can totally consume it or you can take that and create economic activity and housing, which the government wants you to do, and you can actually pay no taxes. So the question is, how are you doing things? It's the way you look at them. It's not about the thing. It's about you. Yep. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's what I love about capitalism in general. It's all about what you're doing for other people. Like, you know, once again, you have to fill demand. You have to help other people to create wealth. There's just no way around it. You have to provide options. Now, some people may disagree with the options that you're providing, but as long as somebody agrees with it, you're fulfilling that demand or, or options. And the tax system is made so you will do that, so you will help other people. That's why the pie analogy doesn't make sense, because the GDP is invented. It's created, right? 
GDP grows because more people are inventing more things and inventing more ways to consume more, hiring more people, filling and creating more demand. And, you know, when you look at your investment portfolio and how you're handling it, that's how I look at all my investments and my, my businesses, right, is the consuming part. So I actually don't want to take very much money out of them because that is I'm disincentivized to do that. I want to keep it in the machine. I want to keep growing it. I want to keep building. And those little changes have huge implications in the future. Um, people may think that 10% isn't a lot. But when you take 10% compounded over a 10-year period of time, the difference is astronomical. Well, and, and along those lines, it's, it's, there's a um, – I, I think it's based on a book, like paying its uh, client – what is it called? It's basically where you're paying things daily. And, and so here's the essence of what this meant for me. There were two things that I did. I took 10% of the business and whatever the revenues were, I paid myself every single day. And I also made sure I paid off my credit cards every single day. It, this did a couple of things. One, with the credit cards, it kept me from ever getting to a point where I got a ten dollars or $20,000 bill, which nobody likes those. And if you do it every day, you're like, okay, it's always keeping it at zero. It, it changed my credit score by about 50 points in 60 days because I never had a high balance. Very interesting side effect. It, it also kept me very, very clear on what I was actually doing. I wasn't able to swipe my credit card without looking back and going, oh, yep, I did that. And it kept me very like oh, very present. And then the, the payment is very, it's kind of fascinating because one, you make sure that your business is actually feeding you and you're not dying in the middle of this thing, just serving it all the time. And and it's it's this constant reinforcement. So, you know, you, your business brings in a thousand bucks and you make a hundred bucks. You're like, cool, I like that feeling. So you get back to work. If you're just waiting until maybe there's some extra money at the end of the month, it's not the same thing. It gives you a reality check and it gives you some emotional triggers that help you and keep you very clear. And we said clarity is power. This is clarity every single day. What's happening in your business? Because you feel it. Because money is emotional. I love those two strategies. And every day it gives you something to do. So well, I just two, encourage everybody to do those. You're talking about uh, financial discipline. And I love this. Totally. It should be set up in a way. And I see a lot of people where they're set up. So I, I talk about uh, in, uh, investment vehicles or wealth vehicles that you're building. A lot of people are building uh, jobs. That's all they're doing. They're building jobs. And I, you know, I thought I need to construct a wealth vehicle. That's not a job. And two, it's meant to serve me, not the other way around. And the financial discipline of paying yourself first, which there's an amazing book. I suggest everyone, um, reads it. And I think that's what it's called. In fact, I think it's called pay yourself first. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I, I'll, I'll try to find this and put it in the show notes for everybody, but Oh, profit first. It's profit yes. That's the book first. I'm talking about. That, yeah. Yes. I love that book. It's an amazing book. And it talks exactly about this. It's about prioritizing the finances within your organization. But for me, I treat my personal finances just like I do business finances. So like where you're talking about, and we can and talk about this for a minute, because I think it's really important, is debt. So for me, short-term debt is a zero-based prospect. Like you said, paid off all the time. It can never roll over. So I should never have credit card fees, things like that, because it should be, I should use debt but short-term debt should be a rollover aspect. Long-term debt should be cash-flowing assets, right? And if I do have personal long-term debt, if you have like a house or whatnot, I always started out in the marriage. Um, Warren Buffett talks about having a, a three times earning payoff at the most. I cut that down to a one-year time payoff. So my income 
was the total amount. My one-year income was the total amount of my debt. I understand that's not everyone can do that in a position. I started out really, really low and then built with my sales job and moved from there. But three times total income uh, um, to debt. But uh, consumer debt was just never an option for me. Um, and, and, and watching those debt ratios, it was all about, once again, you talked about clarity and control, understanding where you are and the lack of clarity on debt kills people financially. It just kills them. They don't see it. They don't know it. They don't know what's happening and it's eating them 24 seven alive and they don't even know it. If if we're ignorant to debt, it will kill us. If we're clear on it, it can serve us. I, I've got one of one of my mentors that I accidentally in, in, got involved with because he generally focused on on teaching dentists how to be profitable with their business and giving them more time. And I'm like the in a thousand person audience, I'm the one guy that's not a dentist. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> but he he has a strategy, and and I I've been teaching some of this some of, as an offshoot of what I learned from him. Having a ten year plan, there's almost nothing that you can't accomplish in ten years. I mean, I'm including being completely financially free, being debt free, being done with working for money the rest of your life. That's one thing. You can do almost anything. If you want to become a pilot and have a jet, you can literally do that in 10 years. So one of the things that we can that we need to understand is if you have a plan, you can use debt and then be done with debt in a 10-year period. If you say, I'm going to use debt and be done with debt in three years, you're delusional because you're not going to pay it off. It doesn't work like that. No business, no real estate works that fast. But with, with a 10-year plan, and he was talking about his plan where he said, okay, I bought you know, $30, $40 million worth of property. It was my business, my company. We had these buildings. And I said, okay, I'm buying this. 10 years later, last year, he's like, I, I don't have any debt. I have $40, $50 million worth of, of property. So here we are in the middle of this crisis. And where's he at? He's fine. He, he's not sitting there going, oh my gosh, like a lot of folks out there, and I get it, where you're sitting there thinking, I've got debt payments. I hope the government bans people from collecting because I'm in trouble. If you don't have the debt, and I think that's a smart thing. A lot of people say you should always use debt because it's really cheap interest. And I'm thinking, no, there's a point where you just want to have no stress. Debt has a stress factor, and it's a useful tool. It can also be something that just like in this time, you go, well, I've only got 60% debt. What happens when you have 0% people paying you in your property? I think that's just awesome. I love this analogy. So debt is a very complicated and can be an extremely complicated thing for people. For two reasons. So I have debt, but we have extraordinarily low debt um, on large properties that are cash flowing with lots of tenants and two that we control of. Unlike um, unlike multifamily, things like that, where there's long periods of time, but we, don't, we just don't have that in our properties. We don't have that kind of liability. You don't pay your out basically immediately and it's replaced. We can do things like dynamic pricing, but we have, you know, 40% uh, loan to value on our properties. And we had people that would come out and they're like, listen, we could refinance this and hand you, you know, 20, 30 million today. And you could go out. And then they're like, think about what you could do. And a lot of people are like, you're a moron because you're not capitalizing on that. Right. Well, right now we, we look pretty good and we grow out of cash flow. So we, once we hit, there's this point that when we started out, I, I kind of projected it all where I knew that if we didn't leverage up and we, it would add on a few years worth of time. But by the time that our cash flow added to our compound, so we, you paid expenses, you had profit, we could take 50% of the profit, we could pay us, 
then have profit, take 50% of the profit. Then we could allocate 50% to buying new properties, meaning we could have our cake and eat it too. That was essentially where I wanted to get to. And then every year as our debt got lower and lower, which will eventually become non-existent, but the machine doesn't stop because a lot of people view debt as that's the only way they can keep going, which I did not like at all. I didn't want to be dependent on debt for growth. And so, you know, once again, cash flow freedom is the name of the podcast and what we do. It was all about the reallocation of capital. So how can I get a known rate of return by using current cash flows, reinvesting that cash flow, getting that known rate of return and compounding it out? And you can mask that with debt. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. And a lot of people get caught in that. Their growth is artificial. It's not true growth. It is way over leveraged, and that works in good times, and that fails miserably in bad times. And instead of growing, you're all the way back to where you started. We've got an entire system that's that's based on needing to expand because our monetary system is it's printed, and it's printed because it's debt. And so the system needs more people with debt. So when you get a you, in your situation, you got this proposal to have more debt. That's our, our system is wanting you to do that. But that supports the system. It doesn't necessarily support us. And so I, you know, kudos for not just saying, yes, more debt is better. More debt is just more debt. And just because you have more cash doesn't mean you're going to be safer or more secure or happier or anything else. It's we we need to there needs to be a reality check because we tend to think, oh, look, I got a, a bigger line of credit on my credit card, or somebody's offering me a couple million dollars cash out or 10 million or whatever the thing is. Okay, so tell me why that's better. And I, it's all it is is more debt that feeds a machine. Is it feeding you? Is it making your life better? I think we need to be a little bit more critical of these things that were being pitched because they're just touching on our greed glands most of the time. And do they really fix anything or make anything better? I'm not sure that they do. And I, I hope people will at least take a pause because right now we're in pause mode. It's called bunkering. And maybe think about these things a little bit. You know, it, it's an interesting thing too because when I, I, I own several other companies and I started one of my companies a couple of years ago and we started small and we started nimble and I was using everything cash and I was paying all of it out of our pocket and everything. And everybody we were working with was confused. They're like, you have access to so much money. You have more cash on hand. Why don't you just go out and start hiring all these people and blowing up and everything? And I'm like, listen, I bootstrap no matter what, even if I have the money, even if it's in cash, but especially I don't put debt into my startups because what it does is it, I, I, I believe firmly that adding debt to create a system that is supposed to run um, or eventually organically becomes very hard to switch that process. So I'm so used to the debt and I'm getting these returns because of the debt, um, whether it's operations, whatever it is, uh, that all of a sudden to switch and turn that around and say, you know what, now I'm going to now bootstrap it. I'm going to get it more in line and get rid of this exposure. That's really hard to do after the fact. So I'm like, instead of getting, you know, I, I, I'm all about growing organically and spending that extra time and that extra effort because I believe it's constructed different. I be, believe the system to generate that capital and that cash flow is fundamentally structured different. And um, it has more staying power. That's obviously not right in every circumstance. And I understand people do do startups differently. That's been my experience, though, and what's worked really, really well for me in 
particularly the business. I'm talking not talking about like my investment properties, which I use debt to, um, but low debt. Uh, but actual businesses, when product-based businesses, um, service-based businesses, all those kind of things. Um, I try. I don't try. I've avoided debt a hundred percent of the time. Totally get it. I think that's a good lesson for everybody to to really think about not just saying yes to debt, but actually asking why you're doing it. I think it's a it's a strong thing for us to sit with for a minute and maybe just take a pause and, and think about because our entire system is based on debt. So what you're saying is sage wisdom and advice for everybody listening right now. Well, now and you so you talk about getting clarity here. And before we wrap up, you have clarity. You're talking about understanding your position and building it. You know, where do people need to go from this? You talk about being in the driver's seat and being a pro instead of an amateur. You know, what is that, you know, where where do you help people get? Because you work with people. Like, this is what you do, right? You work on personal finance and helping people uh, achieve the goal. When a lot of people, I feel like, they don't even know what that is. You talk about clarity. We talk about clarity starting out. A lot of people don't have the clarity, even to the end goal, right? Because they don't know what they haven't seen, right? They don't know what they don't know, essentially. This is this is the value. One of the things that I screwed up years ago when when I first started, if I was to look back, the one thing that I would make sure that I did was to have somebody that had a lot, decades more experience that was guiding me and coaching me. I always say, go find somebody that's bald or grayer than you are. And that, that way they've got perspective and they can help you see the blind spots. And it's, it's really about the blind spots of where you are because anybody, any fool can come up with a vision that's big because they've seen some type of magazine with really shiny pictures, but it doesn't really make any, it doesn't help you see where you truly are. So I, I think the most valuable thing people can do is like you said earlier, having accountability about reality, like what is really true and finding somebody that is not going to be your friend is going to just tell you the truth that you respect enough and that you're paying to pay attention. Like when you actually pay people to pay attention, you'll pay attention. If you just say, hey, what do you think? And then somebody tells you for free, you're unlikely to do anything if it hurts. You're like, ah, what an idiot. I'm going to go do my own thing because I don't want to listen to that. But if you pay them, you're more likely to say, okay, that's actually valuable. And I paid them for that information and do something different. That's what I would go focus on first and then go from there. You know, it's funny because I, I actually agree with you. We had, we had a mastermind that um, I was a part of. I'd never been a part of a mastermind before. I, I saw the value and everything of it. And it was Brandon Turner. And he called me up and he was like, hey, I want you to come mastermind and uh, i said okay well how much is it going to cost and he's like you know and he told me the number and i don't know if he wants me to share that or not so I'm, and i'm like okay you know i'm in and he said what would you have said if it was free and i said if it's free i wouldn't have gone and uh, he's like that's what i thought right and he can't even accept money for masterminds so it just went to pay for the program just stuff like that because of his arrangements with bigger pockets but he set it up and it was awesome and what I found, the reason I said yes is, first of all, I knew the people that were going to come, if you had to pay, they were serious. So I wasn't going to waste my time. If it was free, I don't know who I'm getting, and it might just be a big waste of time or a sales pitch or something like that. So there's a sense of giving something up and then having an expectation to get that I agree and I apply in my same life. I know when I'm giving something up, I've got to step it up and I've got to put it up. And we have a, we have a self-storage income mastermind. And it's kind of the same thing with that. It's like, no, you need to be here to be. If you if you don't want to be, that's fine. But we're here to get serious, to actually work, to build a path. So I I really like that. It's I, that's a concept I think I learned later on in life, but is a valuable one. Well, and, and and you know to to kind of leave people with something to noodle on, you absolutely get what you pay for. And so when somebody says, you know, my mastermind is ten or twenty or fifty thousand dollars. 
you know, the question is, are you big enough to write that check? Are you ready enough? Are you committed enough? When, when people hire people and it doesn't work out and they blame the coach, it wasn't the coach's fault. It's the person's fault. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line because that's, it's when you own your life, you write the check, you go do something with it. If you don't own your life, you're always going to find somebody else that's at fault for what you didn't do and step up for. Well, and I think the people don't, as you get bigger, the reason you understand this, like, so if I look at all my coaches that I have, for example, I have my CPA team, right? We have our accounting firms. We have three of them, two big ones. We have all these people that I pay huge amounts of money. Our organization pays, you know, not tens of thousands, but we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to these organizations um, and these extremely experienced people. These are coaches. That's literally, that's all they are. I called up my attorney this morning. What do you think about this and what should we do? We're bouncing ideas off of each other. I pay these people tons of money. And if I didn't, they wouldn't work with me. And my results would, would they would actually represent that. So um, in life, you are what your team is. And I would be nowhere without my team because I'm an idiot. So I have to surround myself with really smart people, right? And if you don't understand that you're an idiot, you're in trouble. I mean, that's absolutely the first part. That's a fact. That's that's one of my favorite things when somebody my, uh, some one of my friends will say this all the time. He goes, I'm literally the dumbest one in the room. And if I'm ever not the dumbest one in the room, I'm in the wrong. Like I need to get new people because I don't want to be the one that's trying to drive this thing. And I've, I've noticed that when I when I crashed in 2008, I was generally the smartest one in the room. Big problem because I'm not yes. that smart. I just my ego is thinking you don't need anybody else. And so now I'm constantly looking for people that just stretch me and it forces me to do a lot of homework. And to ask me, am I ready? Do I need to pull myself out of whatever energy level of state I'm in? Like it really pushes me all the time. And I go into those places not as a confrontation or as a competition with somebody. It's really, it's a collaboration with them. And so it's a different philosophy when you move into the space with people that are a lot smarter and a lot further down the road than you are going in there. You can grow massively and quickly. Awesome. Dude, that, that was just so great. I, you know, I, I have another podcast and I've actually pushed them off. This was so wonderful. I know I had a hard stop, but thank you so much for uh, your information. It, you know, where can people get a hold of you, learn more from what you're doing and everything? Um, where, where should people go? Uh, best place to visit is DamienLupo.com. You'll see all the stuff that's going on, the videos, the, the retirement stuff. And there's just, you can have as much of me as you can tolerate or, um, or you can stomach, I guess, or, you know, whatever you want. It's, <laughs> it's all kind of there. It's, so come, come visit. There's, you know, there's copies of, the, of books and videos and the trainings that I do, but DamienLupo.com, no matter how you spell it, you're going to end up in the same place. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate all the value you brought in your, in your wisdom. Um, and you know, it really is appreciated. Thank you. Thanks, AJ. I appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at Cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.